This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation! Give me a golf course. 70 courses! Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? We're watching. Time for chill vibes. Beach yoga. How about a garden tour? Mount Park. Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Savor, production of iHeartRadio. I'm Annie Reese. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And today we have an episode for you about the joy of cooking. Yes. Like the uh, book. The book. I also, mean, I, it is about the joy of cooking. It is. It is. Yeah. And it was a, it was a very joyous one to do. I was telling Lauren before this, I don't own this book, but my oh. mom did. Oh, yeah. And I... There's such a wonderful documentation of every edition and every cover <laughs> that I believe she has the much-coveted 1975 version with oh. the jacket. Oh, wow. Um, but it was one of those things where I would just see her, like, as a kid, kind of flipping through it as if it's a book. Like, not, like, looking through to get a certain recipe, but just kind of reading just it. Just sort of reading it, Yeah. Yeah, but then every now and then she had certain recipes where it'd be like, tonight I got to get out, joy of cooking. Like, oh. so she did have her go-to recipes in it. But sometimes I would just see her kind of just flipping through it. So it brought back all these warm memories for me, for me, even though oh. I, I don't have one. Um, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. I, um, it, yeah, I, I think my mom and dad both individually, like before they got together, had their own copies. And, uh, and I've... I have at least one of those. I'm not. I my books are all in storage right now. Um, so I, I'm in this this really continual in between housing kind of situation, you guys. And so I, and I and I was like, I, I really miss my books right now. Like I was like, oh, I need to like like I can't put my hand on that book, and it's so confounding because it's the first time, I think, in basically my entire life. Like, I'm pretty sure my dad sent me to college with a copy of The Joy of Cooking. Mm -hmm. um, and so, like, I can't put a hand on it right now. And that's very strange. Yeah. Yeah. It was nice to read so many accounts of something similar to that, that it's a very kind of comforting mm -hmm. thing people would reach for. And that we, this was kind of a last minute topic. I'm glad you suggested it because it was fun to research. Uh 
But, you know, we were looking for, like, Valentine's Day things. There's all these tent poles happening. Um, but I think, and you can tell me if I'm completely reading this wrong, but I feel like this is a good, you know, reminder of the of this joy you can find in cooking, of, of this connection you can find in it. Yeah, and, and right, and, like, family connections and whatever mm-hmm. that means to you. And, um, and, and yeah, and, and the... <laughs> The joy of unreliable narrators, uh, as we were, we were also talking about um, a, a lot of, a lot of this outline is based on um, various writings that various people who have worked on these editions of this book in the Rombauer family um, over the years, th- their recollections, and I don't, I don't think that their recollections are correct because none of them match up. None of them match up. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um everything reported everything a little bit differently and i'm like well that's part of the charm that's okay that's just fine so we're just we're just rolling with it i so with the caveat that i have no idea if anything that follows is accurate that's um, a fun caveat <laughs> i feel like that's before you know like you're watching a horror movie and it's like based on true events inspired oh, by inspi- this yeah mm-hmm, yeah and you're like mm-hmm. hmm, okay yeah based but on the gale fun. weathers book yeah uh-huh yeah. Yeah, Gail Weathers, the new screen movie is coming out soon. <laughs> Ooh, not a sponsor, uh, just a fan. Just, um, yeah. Well, it has been a long time since we've done what we were calling profiles <laughs> and deliciousness. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've done James Beard, Isabella Beaton, Julia Child, Edna Lewis, and I think we did Betty Crocker, right? Betty yeah, Crocker. yeah, definitely. I mean, she wasn't a real person, but uh, right, but, but yeah. Falls in um, this kind of realm, though. Sure, sure. Um, we we've we've interviewed a couple of people who have written books. Um, uh, Hawa Hassan and uh, and and, and Julia Skinner. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes, so, yes. So you can see all of those for for a little bit more about that. I think also, um, gosh, so, so some of our other like like more um, history of cuisine heavy episodes, like the one about yeah. French cuisine and stuff, might kind of kind of dovetail yeah yeah and this one's really cool because it's been published so many times which we're going to talk about that it is a it's a neat kind of cycle of seeing oh at this time this is what was important and yeah anyway it, it is a really it, it's a, i really enjoyed doing the research for this one same yeah in a frustrating way but same yes <laughs> well i guess that brings us to our question yeah yeah the joy of cooking. What is it? Well, uh, joy of cooking, or the joy of cooking, depending on which edition you're looking at, um, is a cookbook originally written um, and or collected uh, by one Irma S. Rombauer and self-published in 1931. Self-published. Wild. Um, <laughs> it has since become a bestseller and like a staple of American household cooking. And Irma was not a professional writer, uh, nor a professional cook. She was a homemaker. She wasn't even a particularly good home cook. Um, Supposedly, one of her husband's family members, upon hearing about this project, was like, Irma's a terrible cook. This is the worst (laughs) idea ever. Um, But yeah, um, she, she was she was known for for being um, a charming socialite, like an active member of her community organizations uh, and a great hostess. And it's kind of those things like her practicality and her organization and her dedication and her charm that made her a great cookbook writer. 
Joy of Cooking is just this like if you if you've never paged through a copy like Annie's mom does sometimes, um, it's just endlessly practical and charming. Uh, one of one of her friends apparently recommended that she write it as though, and I quote, "Everyone were a fool in the kitchen." Um, <laughs> That's that's a quote from her her daughter uh, uh, Marion, but yeah, it's it's sort of like it's sort of like explain it to me like I'm five the cookbook, um, yeah. like it doesn't talk down to you though it just it just doesn't make assumptions like it wants you to succeed and it is taking you from a base level to hypothetical success. Yeah, I love that. It doesn't make assumptions. It's like. Yeah. You know, I've been there. Yeah. Maybe you're high and at a higher place than me, but let's we'll start yeah. from a place of kinship. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And and part of that is the way that the recipes are written, because they're they're talking you through the process the way that like a particularly clear friend might explain it to you. Like it's not separated into ingredients and then method. Um, the ingredients are put in boldface in the middle of the method like someone's just talking you through it yeah Mm -hmm. um furthermore every like subsection starts with a quick or not so quick about paragraph that describes real simply what you're dealing with like just a little bit about how gin is made before you get into the cocktail recipes or an explainer on different types of pastry dough before the the phyllo based apps uh, there are cross-references to other sections in the book if you want to explore other aspects of the ingredient or the method of cooking or whatever it is that you're dealing with. And uh, and it is so personable and, like, really dryly funny and kind of corny and, <laughs> like, so, sort of old-fashioned, but in a sweet, in a really sweet way. Um, as I was paging through the, the 2019 edition online, I ran across what I consider to be an excellent example of the writing. Um, It's in the middle of this otherwise very straightforward section about tea. Uh, And there's an entry on iced tea, and it starts out, This beverage originated in our family's native town, St. Louis. The inventor was actually an Englishman who arrived at the concoction as an act of desperation when the general public showed indifference to his hot tea offerings in the sweltering Midwestern heat. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's pretty solid. <laughs> and it just gives you a really solid recipe for iced tea. And I'm like, what What happened? <laughs> it is kind of a, like, fun stream of consciousness, a lot of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's it's delightful. Um, uh, there was also this gem at the beginning of the section on uh, cocktails, wine, and beer. In our experience, food is inseparable from alcohol. Or at least the latter should be cautiously consumed without the former. Wise. Sage. Sage advice. <laughs> yes. Well, speaking yeah. of what about the nutrition? <laughs> Read responsibly. I <laughs> yeah. We actually do have something kind of related to the nutrition in this, but that will be in the history section. It will be, yeah, don't don't eat books, I guess. That's that's all I got. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well. We do have some numbers for you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The Joy of Cooking, or Joy of Cooking, uh, mm, is yeah. one of the best-selling cookbooks ever. Over 18 million copies since it was published uh, during the Great Depression. Um, and it has undergone what I read, eight significant revisions. Significant revisions. <laughs> um, and <laughs> it really is. As I was saying, this fascinating look at all kinds of factors throughout America's history, 
um, wartime rationing, fluctuating prices, and tastes. The 1951 version had 23 recipes for stuffed tomatoes. <laughs> That's <Wow>. amazing. <laughs> That's beautiful. Yes, like huh. new technologies, like the blender, like whole chapters about that, shifting priorities, especially around like health. Um, and it, it was very, I will also say it was something that was very cognizant of like price of yeah. your, your time and your, what you could afford, which oh, was yeah. something that was very, I feel would be very comforting. And I think a lot of people did feel that like it wasn't shaming in that way. It was just kind of like. Just straightforward about it. Like, yeah. Like, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I did find a whole article about kind of this, I want to say underground. It's not underground, but kind of this whole <laughs> world of um, getting, hunting down copies of The Joy of Cooking and how some copies can go for 15000 And there's also what? so... Dollars? Yes, American 15, dollars? 15000 American dollars. And there's so much fun shade huh. in my opinion about what they think is like these collectors like oh that one doesn't count or it doesn't have this in it so therefore <laughs> very strong opinions about this <laughs> all right yeah i i always love a strong opinion that's beautiful and right no cookbook collection i feel like we've gone into this a little bit in the past mm -hmm. maybe in that betty crocker episode but it can be a violent sport <laughs> <laughs> they had opinions <laughs> it was great um so look into that if you if you're interested but in the meantime we do have quite a history for you we do and we're going to get into that as soon as we get back from a quick break for a word from our sponsors this episode is brought to you by pronamel not all our favorite foods and drinks are bffs with our teeth Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. 
In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes, thank you. All right, so... The Joy of Cooking, a collection of reliable recipes with a casual culinary chat, <laughs> as was the full title, uh-huh. <laughs> original title, was first published in 1931. As you said, it was self-published by Irma Rombauer, and Irma Rombauer was a recently widowed mother of two. She was this great hostess and homemaker um, out of St. Louis, and this was the first year of the Great Depression, and Rombauer's husband who had grappled with mental health issues, had just taken his own life. Um, Stepping back a bit, Rombauer was born in St. Louis in 1877. Her parents were well-off German immigrants, and she did some traveling to Germany growing up. I suspect I read some of those stories we can't really verify about her early life, about Mm -hmm. who she dated and everything. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. It seems very exciting. (laughs) Yeah, got a little bit got a little bit saucy. Yeah. Uh, I I read that um, she met her husband Edgar. He was a lawyer, and and she was just like a socialite. But they met doing amateur theater. Oh, oh, <laughs> I know, I know. Oh yeah. no, uh, she did have an artist mindset. I read that in a lot of places, mm-hmm. at least. And she she did like to take on these creative projects. And after her husband's death. She wanted to uplift her spirits and the spirits of those struggling during the Great Depression. Again, this is kind of what we're reading through, you know, the backwards end of the tale. But, yeah, she seems like she seems like somebody who did enjoy hosting. Yes, uh, definitely yes. hosting. Yes, because she was notably not a chef, as you said. <laughs> uh-huh. uh-huh. Um, Yep. So when this book first came out, the cookbook contained 450 recipes that she had collected and organized from family and friends. Yeah. And she might have started doing a bit of this years earlier as part of her like society involvements. But that's one of the facts that I couldn't I couldn't quite. Right. Verify. Verify. Yeah, I do love that idea, though, because, again, and I'm going to talk about this more in a second. This was before the Internet. So. I can just envision people kind of exchanging recipes and trying to help each other out at these events, um, which I love. I love. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And and this cookbook was sprinkled throughout with, yes, tips on entertaining, on menu planning, those head notes, as you said, kind of those things at the beginning where Ron Bauer would share thoughts and stories, some of them longer <laughs> than others. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The original cover was a paper cutout. That was done by her daughter, Marion, and it depicted the patron saint of cooks, um, St. Martha Bethany, slaying a dragon that was supposed to symbolize kitchen drudgery. It's really cute. Yeah, yeah. She's holding like like a mop in one hand and like a cauldron in the other, and she's, right, slaying this it's kitchen honestly this dragon. Like, it's great. really striking. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's great. I think it was reproduced in a, well, maybe a 1980s version of the book. It's really cool. Uh, I did find a timeline of like all the covers. This was how I kind of figured out which one my mom had. Oh, right, um, right. Yeah, and it, it's it's neat to look at. Uh, Marion also helped test the recipes, and oh. it was one of the first cookbooks to remove the ingredients from the direction section and list them instead chronologically, which I think we talked about in um, our episode on Isabella Beaton. But it is fascinating, kind of the 
because you kind of got to you got to get in the mindset of people who are using this as instructions. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I just find it a really fascinating look into the human brain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Both both methods are certainly valid. I'm more used to having them separated, but mm-hmm. I think it's useful both ways. It's useful both ways. It is. It is. Uh, Rombauer spent half of her savings to publish this book, and she got a lot of positive feedback. Um, so she started pitching it to major publishers, and in 1936, she succeeded in getting a national distribution deal. Yeah, uh, Bob's Merrill out of Indianapolis was the publisher who picked it up. Supposedly, the president of the company met Irma while they were playing bridge at Irma's cousin's house, mm. and that's how it happened. <laughs> Like, she had submitted it a few times, but it was the bridge conversation Uh, uh that sealed the deal. (laughs) Uh, But it went on to sell some, like, 50,000 copies, which is a pretty decent success. Uh, Although Irma didn't really make much money from it, which was her other motivation in publishing this book, because, you know, she she, she was in her 50s when her husband died, and she was a widow, and it was the Great Depression, and the family needed money. Apparently, she had... Uh, against the advice of her lawyers, being sort of inexperienced, signed away her rights to Bob's Merrill. And the publisher was pretty unchill about it, from from Mm. what I understand. And um, both Irma and later her daughter Marion had to fight them, like, a lot. Uh, Yeah. 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 And I did want to put this note in here, as I mentioned earlier. We did talk about this a lot in the Betty Crocker episode especially, but Mm -hmm. before the internet, these cookbooks were a way to not only share recipes and offer advice, but also to feel a connection for home cooks who were largely women at this time, um, who were putting together these meals often by themselves for their families and friends. It made the experience less lonely. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing that set this cookbook apart was Rombauer's voice and Frank admits. That she wasn't yeah. a great cook. She's mm-hmm. very open about it. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. There wasn't a pretentiousness to it. There wasn't any shaming, like I said, about needing to save time or money. And many families passed these copies down, continue to, over generations. Oh, yeah. Also, note, you know, th- this was, right, this was published during the Great Depression, during a time of a lot of social up- upheaval, um, uh, more people were doing more cooking for themselves, you know, like whereas upper class families had had servants do that in the past, that was becoming uh, way less common and everyone had to stretch their budgets. Prohibition was still on when she self-published, um, although I I can't I, I, I couldn't track down whether it was in the original 1931 self-published version or the 1936 version, which was after Prohibition had lifted. But like first page, she's got a gin and juice drink. <laughs> like first page. <laughs> yeah. Um, either way. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. The 1943 edition would become America's most popular cookbook. It sold some 600,000 copies. Wow. Yeah, um, and over the years, those 450 recipes flourished into thousands of recipes. Oh, yeah. Um, Sections like wartime rations were dropped and replaced with entirely new sections like frozen desserts. Um, In the 60s, the the from The Joy of Cooking was dropped from the title. 
still don't know what that was about. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, different revisions throughout this whole sort of mid-century period were kind of ahead of their time, you know, where, where more serious recipes were being written with these fancy ingredients and like lengthy preparations. Irma kept things affordable in terms of, as you were saying, Annie, but both money and time. Uh, she encouraged the use of prepackaged ingredients as they came out. A later, Marion added an emphasis on a return to fresh vegetables, like right on the cusp of the um, uh, uh, Nouvelle Cuisine movement. So super interesting. Mm -hmm. Through the late 40s and 50s, Irma did enjoy a certain amount of celebrity uh, and travel. Julia Child wrote about being really inspired by her and her book. Uh, the two met actually in Paris over lunch sometime in the early 1950s and talked about writing and publishing. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Irma Rombauer died in 1962. And Marion co-wrote new editions with Irma up, up until Irma's death, though Irma did stop sometime in the in the 1950s that next edition after Irma passed away that was published in 1963 was entirely done by Marion and the family tradition would continue by the 1975 edition Marion's son Ethan was co-writer yes and one of the things I loved about this um, which I'm sure is very frustrating don't get me wrong but it was kind of funny to read about like like comic book level. Oh, this is this edition is not and all the kind of like behind the scenes Gossip. drama about yeah. it. Yes. So one of the big ones uh -huh. was <laughs> the 1997 edition that sparked a lot of consternation from fans of Joy of Cooking because it had the addition of recipes from celebrity chefs and food writers, uh -huh. which many felt strayed from the heart of of joy of cooking, the point of joy of cooking, perhaps the thing that made it what it was. An article out of the Times labeled it the new Coke of cookbooks. <laughs> oh, wow! Oh my! <laughs> that is the harshest, most 1997 diss I can possibly yes. think of. <laughs> yes, that's beautiful. Uh, yeah, um, uh, e Ethan was in charge of that one. And, and, you know, I think that, that he and, and everyone involved really meant well. It was like a nod to modernization. You know, they were making use of professional test kitchens and professional writers. They had cut some, some seemingly really retro recipes on, I don't know, like weird ice creams and chapters about preservation because it seemed like no one was into that. The shrimp wiggle was right yes. out. I don't know what the heck that is, but you can imagine, you can imagine aspects and what a shrimp wiggle could possibly be. It seemed like a good thing. And it just, it just wasn't. Uh, yeah. Because there, there are, there's so much nostalgia involved. Like <laughs> people were mad the shrimp wiggle was taken out. Yeah. They were like, where's my shrimp wiggle? Come on. Yeah. Even, they're not even making it, but they want to <laughs> know about it. Uh, so the 2006 edition was viewed as a return to form. Yes. Yes. Uh, and that run did include, because uh, it was the 75th anniversary. Um, so it included a leather bound anniversary edition with gilded edges. Wow. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Ethan was also in charge of that one. And I, I think <laughs> I think he was kind of um, uh, humbled and apologetic. Yeah. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Uh, but um, but right after after 2006, his son, John, took over. So mm -hmm. fourth fourth generation of of cookbook writers. Mm -hmm. 
But stepping back just a second, uh, also in 1997, uh, Anne Mendelssohn published a biography of uh, Irma and Marion called Stand Facing the Stove, the story of the women who gave America the joy of cooking. Mm-hmm. A lot of fandom around this, I've got to say. Oh, sure. oh, yeah, yeah. I have, I have not read that biography, but I'm, I, I really want to now. Um, yeah. I, I usually do that kind of thing before these episodes, but it was a little bit last minute. At mm-hmm. any rate, um, in 1998, Irma was inducted into the St. Louis Walk of Fame, which is a thing. Um, <laughs> she, she, has a, she has a star and a plaque set into a sidewalk and everything. Yeah. Nice. Okay. This brings us to kind of a complicated nutrition note that I was alluding to earlier uh-huh, uh-huh. that I think should be its own episode in the future. But Ooh, yeah. Yes. All right. In the context of this, a 2009 study out of the Annals of Internal Medicine called The Joy of Cooking Too Much claimed, yeah, uh-huh, claimed that the calorie counts of recipes in The Joy of Cooking, I say jo- The Joy of Cooking. I know people get mad at me, but I say The Joy of Cooking. Come at me. I think it's okay. Uh, <laughs> these recipes had increased by an average of 40% since the 1936 edition. Uh, In terms of calorie count. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, right, right, right. Um, And they advised classic recipes need to be downsized to counteract growing waistlines. Oh. Yep. Uh, The study authors, especially Brian Wazink, Wansink, uh, who was head of Cornell University's Food and Brand Lab, were known for sort of controversial studies around eating habits that grabbed a lot of headlines, very Mm -hmm. headline-friendly studies. Um, And one of the the authors explained that they were looking into sources of obesity other than things like fast food. So they decided to look into the joy of cooking. Now, this study ruffled a lot of feathers, yes, Mm -hmm. (laughs) including those of the keeper of the joy of cooking's legacy, Ron Bauer's great-grandson, John Becker. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Uh, with the help of Ron Bauer's biographer, they posted a response to the study on the Joy of Cooking website criticizing some of the study's methods. Um, and one of the big things was the, the sample size. So this study only sampled about 18 recipes out of thousands. Oh. Yeah, very mm-hmm. small. It's less than 1%. Um, Still, they didn't reject the findings outright. Uh, John seemed, in in interviews I read with him, he seemed very aware, like, well, I'm not a scientist, but uh something doesn't feel right to me kind of thing. Um, Joy of cooking became almost a symbol of the perceived, quote, sad American diet, um, which really, really rankled (laughs) to the point Becker decided to conduct his own research and was elated that he was not only not getting the same huh. results, but he was getting vastly different results in this oh, study. Huh. Mm-hmm. So Becker sent his findings to several academics in the field, including a behavioral scientist named James Heathers, who had made a name for himself for critiquing studies like this and publishing his results. And I think he huh. did this in like his spare time. It wasn't his job. Oh, wow. Huh. He just was like, really, it was a very passionate thing for him where he's like, I won't stand for this. Um, <laughs> Heathers explained the issue with the study The issue with this study was that there was no way to add it up right. And that's a quote. Um, Mm -hmm. He basically said, it's not that it added up incorrectly. It just, there was no way to add it up right. So one example he gave is that several of the included recipes don't have specific serving sizes. (laughs) So would it have been? Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He also agreed the sample size was the problem. Um, And... Wansink had insisted in the study on comparing recipes 
that had the same names over additions, even if they had involved into a totally different recipe. So like the example Heather's gave was gumbo, where like the original recipe, I'm sure would offend a lot of people, but the original <laughs> recipe was like chicken broth and celery. Oh. And like in the new one, it had like a roux and sausage and all that stuff. Like it, it was the same name. It right. wasn't the same recipe. Yeah. Hmm. Also around this time which was like 2018-ish, an article was published in BuzzFeed that detailed that the author of this study had less than ethical research methods because basically, instead of testing a hypothesis, he would decide the conclusion he oh. wanted and then manipulate the data to support that conclusion. And it, there's like, listeners, there's email records of this. It was a whole expose. It was a whole thing. Uh, but basically, you'd be like, just, massage the data, yeah. find a way to wow. frame the data so it looks like what we want it to look like because they did catch headlines. A lot of their the things sure. that came out of this this guy, I mean, we're talking about it now. <laughs> so it's fascinating, but I do want to come back and do a whole thing about, about like food studies like this. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. Yes. We... <laughs> We've been avoiding talking too much about, right, like nutrition um, mm -hmm. as a whole episode topic because it is so complicated. Like, I yeah. mean, basically just like that saver motto that I give every time yep. <laughs> we talk about nutrition studies would just be the whole episode. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, but right now, some of the some of the drama about yes. it gets really fascinating. Mm -hmm. Well, I know that. Uh, the Joy of Cooking team felt very vindicated after this whole thing. Yes. Uh -huh. <laughs> but um, stepping back a little bit, in 2012, the Library of Congress included The Joy of Cooking among 88 other books that changed America. Oh. Yeah. And yeah, uh, John, John Becker and his wife, Megan Scott, took over for the edition that would come out in 2019. Um, and John writes in the intro to the book about this deep dedication that they both had to to not only the history of the book, but also its usefulness to the modern reader. Like they dug into every recipe and tested them themselves in their own kitchen as their great grandmother had. Um, uh, Marion wrote in the 1963 edition that the book is, quote, a family affair, as well as an enterprise in which the authors owe no obligation to anyone but themselves and you. Oh, yeah. Honestly, it was really, really cool and fascinating to read into it, to read about the changes in the editions and why they made those changes and just the shifting cultural landscape. Um, very heartwarming as well. Yeah, yeah. Especially, I mean, I, I don't know, like, like maybe Annie, you felt this too, but especially being a layman who talks about food yeah. um, and does not claim to have any special expertise, like, right, like reading the story about these people who were just normal people, um, mm -hmm. figuring out how to create something that has meant so much to so many people. Mm -hmm. Just really, really lovely. It was. It was. Oh, listeners, if you have a copy, I yeah. know some of you do. <laughs> yeah. Oh, goodness. Right, right. Like, tell us, tell us about, like, which pages are stained. Yes. The <laughs> tell version. Tell us about yep. the version. Tell us yes. your favorite recipe. Mm -hmm. I need to, uh, once I get my books out of storage at yes. the hypothetical end of this never-ending in-between-houses <laughs> situation, yes. um, I will dig into mine. 
Yes. Yes. And that was one thing we didn't really touch on, but some of those like collector's editions have like misspellings in them and that's how you know it's like the original like (laughs) yes and the the squirrel the squirrel logo some of you know what i mean Um, (laughs) the squirrel yeah it's like a that's how you know it's like an earlier version is because there was a pretty graphic (laughs) drawing because it has illustrations in it of how to like cook a squirrel (laughs) oh right the squirrel recipe okay okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 Anyway, we got to know all the facts. We got to know all the details, all their stories. Uh, but in the meantime, that's what we have to say for now. <laughs> it is. It is. We do have some listener mail for you already, and we are going to get into that as soon as we get back from one more quick break for a word from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily, as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which is morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark, more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes, thank you. And we're back with Listener Mail. Joyous. Yeah. Joyous. <laughs> On this very rainy day. But it is so gray out. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, it's very dark in here. But anyway, <laughs> Christine wrote, I thought I'd follow up regarding hot cross buns in Australia. Mm. 
Technically, they are regarded as a traditional Easter food, and when I was younger, they would go on sale perhaps a week before Easter. I'm not sure when it started, but gradually they started appearing earlier and earlier to the point where they can now be spotted on Boxing Day and stay on sale for a while after Easter. This really upsets traditionalists. Most are the traditional (laughs) spice slash fruit buns. However, chocolate chip buns are gaining in popularity. Some of the supermarket and bakery chains try out different gourmet additions. One chain has a, quote, decadent salted caramel hot cross bun on offer this year. There are even savory offerings. Being Australia, there is a Vegemite one. And last year, I tried a jalapeno and cheese variety. It was bad. I did some asking on the socials, and New Zealand also sells hot cross buns before Easter, though apparently not afterwards. Whether this is yet another pathetic attempt by New Zealand to steal an Australian food tradition and then claim they invented it, I can't say. It might just be that several of our major food companies operate in New Zealand, but that's a very boring explanation. I also finished listening to the classic bagel episode. If you lovely ladies get any hate directed at you over this, tell everyone to remember that. Australia has mass-produced Vegemite bagels. Yes. We Australians do indeed put Vegemite on anything and everything. Let the bagel purist think on that. Wow. That is something to think on. There's a lot of contentious. Uh, yeah. <laughs> this this is a very contentious listener mail. I love it. It I love is. It. it is. Um, really so, came from New Zealand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, that for one thing. Um, okay. So I need, I need point of clarification. Uh, is there Vegemite in the dough of the bagels? Is there like a ribbon of Vegemite baked in? I'm trying to imagine this. I could just Google it, but... Um, no. Yeah. Heck. We need that firsthand account. Absolutely. Yeah. And I... Vegemite hot cross bun. There's a lot of things my brain is struggling to like... I mean, it's just like a good yeast bun. And I mean... But the Vegemite... I'm not very familiar with hot cross buns in the first place, but now you're introducing all these other things. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just I'm just trying to keep up. That's all. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm imagining that the cross that's that's um, is the Vegemite is a Vegemite cross on top of the bun. That's what I'm picturing. Wow. But again, these are just the imaginings of a very sleep deprived Lauren. So. <laughs> So who knows? Who knows what reality could be? It's impossible to Google it at this point. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, thank you. Cause we asked the yeah. question about hot cross buns and when they come out. Because in my experience, it is mostly around Easter. This is funny that it upsets traditionalists. I'm sure it does. Oh, sure. Um, well, it's just that mission creep of all holidays. Yeah. That, you know, like you're over with Christmas and all of a sudden there's Valentine's Day stuff out. And I'm right. like, could we give it? Could we... Hold on. A little breathing room. Yeah. A little breathing room. Mm-hmm. <laughs> At any rate, um, Sheldon wrote about bagels. Uh, first of all, I have to state that my feelings toward bagels are similar to those of Lauren. However, there is a reason for toasting a bagel. If you're traveling and can only get a second-rate bagel, toasting improves it. It can also help with a hopelessly stale one. Other than that, my choice is to eat it plain. 
Outside of Montreal, uh, Montreal bagels are hard to find throughout Canada. But when I get to see you guys when you come up here for the Curd Festival, I'll bring Lauren a Montreal bagel, baked no more than two to three hours before. And one for Annie, too, but that's just to be polite because she's not a real bagel-er. Um, but uh, you have to realize that while they share the name bagels, you cannot compare them to New York City bagels. It's not even an apple to orange thing, more like comparing a pizza to an apple pie. They both have a similar shape. <laughs> <laughs> Good note. Okay. All right. All right. Yeah. Also intrigued, intrigued about this as well. I am as well. And thank you for your politeness and offering me a bagel. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I agree with you. To I feel like toasting can improve a sadder situation. Yeah. Um, I, there's no qualms or beef coming from me. I was just kind of, you know, messing around because I know people got strong opinions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just being a little incendiary. But no, no, I, I'm all for it. I prefer a toasted bagel, honestly. Yeah, um, yeah, no, same, same. Um, uh, I, I will say that uh, super producer Ramsey just DM'd me a video of someone like cry reacting to someone else slicing a bagel lengthwise instead of crosswise, oh. like top oh. to bottom. Oh, interesting. Uh, you know, it's a whole world out there. It's a whole world of. Incorrect things to do to bagels, yes. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> well, I look forward to even more strong opinions. <laughs> I love when we rerun a classic and it got strong opinions the first time and then we re rerun it and it gets even more. <laughs> I love it. It's so good. Yeah. It's so good. I do. I like a Montreal bagel as well. I have one. It's good. It's okay. Good. All right. Well, we'll <laughs> see you at the Curd Festival one day. We will. We will. <laughs> In the meantime... Thanks to both of these listeners for writing in. If you would like to write to us, you can. Our email is hello at saverpod.com. We are also on social media. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at saverpod. And we do hope to hear from you with all of your strong takes. Uh, Saver is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, you can visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thanks, as always, to our super producers, Dylan Fagan and Andrew Howard. Thanks to you for listening, and we hope that lots more good things are coming your way. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Discover Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico is home to a thriving culinary scene based on products and traditions from the native Taino, African, and Spanish peoples that have influenced it. When you go, there are a host of restaurants, bars, breweries, distilleries, farms, and coffee houses to dig into, from five-star experiences to local favorites. No passport required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. 
The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.